What a blessing to worship God in song. Amen. It's amazing. Well, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, that's a, it's just a special holiday. And it's a little bit extra special for me because I was born on Thanksgiving. I was, I was born on Thanksgiving, 1981. My, uh, my dad used to tell me, man, Michael, that was a special day, a day I'll never forget. Cowboys beat the Bears 10 to 9. And I'll say, well, Dad, what, what, do you, what do you remember about my birth? He said, I don't know, son. That was a long time ago, you know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. My dad loves me well. He's a good dad. But um, I do hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And, and I know some of you may be visiting Wayside because you're here seeing family or friends or you're just, checking, you're just looking for a place to worship. And we are, we're thrilled you're here. And, and really, Wayside, in, in the year of 2018, this has been the year of Luke for us. So we have been marching through the Gospel of Luke all year, and we find ourselves this morning in chapter 18, where Jesus is going to teach about faith. And, and we're just coming off uh, last Sunday, where Pastor Roger talked uh, he, about the, the parable that Jesus taught him. So Jesus taught a parable, and, and he tells the listeners about uh, a tax collector and a tax collector and a Pharisee. And they both go to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee goes, and he's just, he's just like, I am great. Like, I'm amazing. I really am, 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 am just doing amazing at this thing called life. And the tax collector goes up, and he's just completely broken of his sin, falling at the feet of God. He can't even lift his eyes because he understands and he acknowledges the greatness and the holiness of of God and Jesus says one of those guys left the temple justified. And it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee. And so he's speaking about this idea of, of justification by faith alone. And so after communicating this reality that it is faith that saves, in, in the section we're going to look at today, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to unpack like aspects of that faith. So if faith were a house. Jesus is going to now explore some of the different rooms that are in that house. And we're going to look at four aspects because the way the passage is going to go is it's going to be four mini-sections, kind of four vignettes, each one describing one of those aspects of faith. And here are the four things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the attitude of faith. We're going to look at the challenges to faith. We are going to look at the rewards of faith. And we're going to look at the foundation of faith. So attitude of faith, challenges to faith, rewards of faith, and the foundation of our faith. And so the first section, which is found in verses 15 through 17, starts like this. It says, And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So in, in our first scene, which is a well-known scene, Jesus is out ministering. He's developed a following. There's parents there, obviously with their kids. They want Jesus to bless their kids. They want Jesus to lay hands on their kids. And so this is taking place, and the disciples see it, and they are not impressed. They're not impressed because, in their opinion, this is a waste of time. Jesus is too important for something so trivial as holding a baby. 
He's too important for something as trivial as getting eye level with a young child. That's their mindset. That's, what, that's the way they are thinking. And as you read this, you may want to just kind of roll your eyes at the apostles again. Be like, golly, those apostles, what a bunch of losers, you know? But, but think of it this way. What if the greatest living theologian was at Wayside on a Sunday? Whoever that is, right? Whoever that is in your mind, it's, it's J.I. Packer, it's, it's Daniel Wallace. I mean, it's the cream, uh, de la cream of theology. They're at Wayside on a Sunday. You find out they're here, and then you find out they're serving with the preschool. They're holding babies. They're teaching the lesson at Kidmo. And you're going, no, get Packer in here. Get Dr. Packer in here. Loudermill can preach another Sunday. He'll be fine. We want to hear from Dr. Packer. And so this is kind of their mindset. But you know, one thing I love about our church, I really do, is the investment this church makes in its children. I mean, it it is a core aspect of our mission. It is a core emphasis of this church is to raise up and to pour in to the children that come through these doors. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. Because we understand as the church that the future of the church are the young ones. And it's the best time to reach them with the gospel. And so we want to emphasize that. We want to pour into them. We want to teach them the gospel. We want to root them in the truths of God. And last week was a great evidence of that. Last week, while you were sitting here, over in the children's building, in the elementary school class, six kids received Christ on a single Sunday. Six. And there's no question that was because the gospel was clearly presented and the Spirit of God worked in the midst of that. But don't you know that was a result of investment after investment after investment after investment. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday of loving and pouring into our kids here at Wayside. So there is a, an amazing ministry going on right over there. And I think that if Jesus attended Wayside, part of what he would do is serve in the children's ministry. I really believe that. And I think this text illustrates that to a certain extent. But the disciples think it's a waste. And Jesus says, not so fast. Jesus says, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. Get out of the way. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I mean, it's a a pretty remarkable statement and gesture by Jesus. And and what he does in this moment is I think he he affirms two pretty important truths that I want to explore for just a minute. And the first one is this. The first one is the value of children. But really, it goes beyond that. Jesus continually, in his earthly ministry, went around affirming the value of all humanity. The Gospel of Luke especially emphasizes this aspect of his ministry. That Jesus is affirming the value of the outcast. He's affirming the value of the broken. He's affirming the value of those who don't fit neatly into categories. He's affirming the value of those who are in the bottom rung of society, whether it be women or children or Gentiles. He affirms the value and dignity of all humanity, no matter their age, stage, socioeconomic status. And this brings us to 
what I think is a pretty essential existential question. And the question is this. Why are humans valuable? Like, why are they valuable? I think most right-thinking people, whether they are Christians or non-Christians or atheists or what have you, I think most people would affirm the value and the dignity of humanity. But the, the question I want to deal with is not, are humans valuable? I want to talk about, why are they valuable? Why? Because you see, this is a question that our society struggles to answer. We live in pervasive meaninglessness amongst so many, where they are yearning for meaning and they have nothing to root it in. And I taught in the schools for seven years, and we would, you know, people just pump the kids that would come through the schools, and we'd say, you are special. You are unique. You are special. And then when they ask the question, why, it's because you are you. Like, what does that even mean? You are you, and that's why you are special? I affirm the reality that they're special. But if you untether it from some objective reason for why they're unspecial, they have no legs to stand on. They have nothing. And what ends up being the purpose or where their value then is derived is, I can do this. I look like this. People feel this way about me because of this. And their value becomes something completely external and completely dependent upon affirmation from others who are yearning for the same thing. But we as Christians have a unique voice in the midst of this meaninglessness. We have a really amazing opportunity to speak right to the heart of the issue. Because in in the Christian perspective, human life is of great value because all humanity is created in the image of God. We are image bearers of our Creator. That is where our purpose and our value is derived from. And this is part of a, of a really important concept in Christian theology called the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei, which just means image of God. That all human lives matter. That all human lives have value and dignity no matter where they are, who they are, how rich they are, what color they are, because they're made in the image of God. And thus they represent, and, and, and God's fingerprints are on them in a way that, he's, that his fingerprints are not on anything else in creation. Humanity is uniquely made in the image of God. And so why is it so egregious to murder, to take a life? Why is it so egregious to rape or to steal or to promote racism? Because humanity is made in God's image. That's why. So we don't need to look to the Constitution to believe that people matter. We don't need the UN to draft a document to say that, hey, humans are kind of important. Because the Scriptures teach us in the very beginning in Genesis 1 that we are made in the image of our Creator with great value and dignity and worth. And this is a hallmark of the Christian faith, and it's been that way from the beginning. 
The early church was amazing at receiving the broken, at receiving the marginalized, at a place where you could come and you could receive the love of God and be transformed by the love of God. As a matter of fact, one of the things that the early church did was in the Roman civilization at the time, they would oftentimes toss out babies. So you, you have a baby, maybe it's not a male, maybe it's just not what you're looking for, maybe, it's, maybe it has some type of uh, deformity, whatever the case may be, so they're just going to leave them out to die in, a, in, a, in a dump, an antiquity dumpster, so to speak. And Christians would literally walk around the town, they would scoop the babies up, they would take them in, and they would raise them. They would raise them. And one early uh, his Roman historian, a pagan, he described this early Christian movement by saying, there are no orphans among them. There are no orphans among them. Because they become family. Because they have dignity, no matter what their parents think, no matter what society thinks, or what civilization promotes, they have dignity. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that is rooted in being in the image of God. Secondly, Jesus uses the children here to point out the proper and necessary attitude of saving faith. Kingdom entering faith. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So you see, entrance into the kingdom is based upon a childlike faith. And we're not talking childlike in terms of lacking depth or lacking maturity. We're not saying, oh, you need to have just a simple faith and never think about the deep things of God. That's the key to getting her in the kingdom. No. It's a childlike faith that is rooted and based upon trust and dependence. Trust and dependence upon God. And children are a great example of this. They're a great example of this. Because children naturally are trusting of their parents. Trusting of adults. Trusting of their mom and their dad, at least until oftentimes they're teenagers. But that's a different sermon, right? And, and we live in South Texas, which means every once in a while, we get one of those sweet apocalyptic thunderstorms, right? Where it just sounds like the world is coming to an end. It's one of the blessings of living down here. And I love those storms. I love when those thunderstorms rage. My kids do not. They get kind of scared, right? And so what oftentimes happens is the, the, the storm comes, it wakes them up, and what do they do? They crawl into Victoria and I's bed. They crawl into our bed. And if you think about this logically, that makes no sense. Like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? Seriously, am I going to just tell the lightning to stop? That's, that's not happening. As a matter of fact, and this is a little secret, uh, Victoria and I's bedroom is actually under a massive tree. It's way more dangerous than their room. Tori and I have woken up, or have awakened sometime. We're like, maybe we should go into their room. Right? But they come in, they get in bed, and what happens? They go right to sleep. Why? Because of total trust. Total trust. I'm with mom and dad. 
everything's okay. And they go right to sleep. And this is the type of faith Jesus is talking about. This is the type of faith God is looking for. One based upon dependence and trust. And yet, I mean, if we're going to be honest, this is church. If you can't be honest here, where can you be honest? If we're going to be honest, that type of faith is not easy, is it? I mean, it's just not easy. Faith, the, the Christian faith, the Christian life is not lived on a mountaintop. You will summit sometimes. You'll have some peaks, but there are real valleys. That's a real thing. There are real periods where life is not looking great, and maybe your walk with God seems pretty distant. And this is what the next section illustrates, because there are challenges that come. There are challenges that come to our faith. And this next section deals with some of them. And it's, it's often referred to as the story of the rich, young ruler, starting in verse 18. So this is our second section that deals with challenges of faith. It says, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it? For those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So this is a a pretty interesting exchange. Jesus is with his disciples. A man comes up to speak to him, and this man is a winner. He's just a winner. Luke uses a Greek word that's translated ruler, and, and it essentially describes this guy as he is just a sharp young, successful, wealthy lay leader in the community. He's somebody that people know. Oh, like, that's Johnny. Man, Johnny's got it. He's got the right degree. He's got the right bank account. He's got the right job. He's got the right position. He is a respected guy. And he comes before Jesus, and he approaches him. He says, what, sh- what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, on the face of it, this looks like some low-hanging fruit. I mean, this guy's asking the right question, isn't he? Don't we wish all people around us would ask this question to us? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And how does Jesus respond? Well, the the first thing he does is he points out the irony and the gravity of this man calling him good. Like, you know good only refers to God alone. You, you You don't know who you're talking to. And then he follows that up and he says, well, if God is good... If he is perfect, then the next thing you need to do is do what he says. Because obviously he knows what he's talking about. So then he goes through the commandments with him. Don't do this. You know, do not do this. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. And he goes through the commandments. And, and Jesus is not teaching a works-based gospel. Jesus is saying, you want to be right with God. He's holy. So you better be perfect. You better be perfect. And the proper response of this guy should have been like the tax collector. It should have been eyes down, broken by his sin, 
recognizing his need of grace. That's the proper response. And yet, that's not the way the rich young ruler responds. He responds with, get this, this is amazing, enthusiasm. He's pumped. He's like, oh, good deal. Because I'm the man. I've kept all those things from my youth. You want perfection, Jesus? You got it. You want, you want, you want the perfect law-abiding citizen? I am your guy. That's his response. But Jesus knows better. And so he leans in. He leans in. Verse 22. He says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you, ha- you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. I mean, Jesus just goes directly for the guy's heart. Directly for his heart. And he tells him one more thing. Give it all away. Give it all away. And follow me. And you will realize a treasure that far exceeds that which you can possess in your measly hands. That's the offer. I mean, here's a guy. I mean, picture this. He's face to face with God incarnate. He asked God incarnate the essential question of life. What must I do to be saved? Jesus actually answers him and then invites him to follow. That's unbelievable. The author and Lord of life is answering the biggest question of life and then inviting this guy to follow him. And yet the scripture tells us, but at these words, he was saddened. He was saddened. And he went away grieving. For he was one who owned much property. Like I said, faith is challenging, friends. It's challenging for all of us. I don't care who you are, where you live, when you live. It's challenging. And what oftentimes may start out like a childlike faith gets assaulted by the enemy, gets attacked by the things of this world and the lust of the flesh, and it begins to poke holes in that childlike faith. And we see two of these major attacks, two of these major challenges in this section. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's two that I see frequently. And the two are this. Number one, divided loyalty. And number two, lack of trust. Divided loyalty and a lack of trust. You see, divided loyalty, when when Jesus really leaned into this man's life, like when he cracked open his heart, what did he find inside? It was not allegiance to God. It was an allegiance to his wealth. It was not a devotion to the creator of life. It was a devotion to this man's riches, to his current construct of life, to his possessions. His loyalty to the things of the world derailed his quest to be loyal to God. And, and this, I think this passage should hit us here in America like a ton of bricks. And I don't say this to you. I say this to me, to us. 
to all of us about how easy it is for wealth to derail our love of God. For wealth to derail our dependence upon God. For wealth to divide our loyalty to God. There's no question that that is a challenge. And yet it's not the only challenge, is it? There are a number of things that can split our allegiance. It can be devotion to a particular relationship that you have no business being in. It can be devotion to a job that supersedes your love for God. It could be devotion to money or to, a, current, or to a, a sin pattern or a certain sin that's just so gripped you that you're like, I don't care about anything else. See, we become divided in our loyalties when we refuse to allow God to have complete ownership of all areas of our life. And so then the question comes, well, why do we do that? Like, why do we keep certain rooms locked and hidden from the creator of life, from the one who created me? Like, why do we do that? And, and I really think it comes down to a real simple response, and it's the second one, which is we don't trust him. It's not complicated. We just do not trust him. We lack trust. We, we doubt his goodness. We doubt his character. We doubt his love. And we doubt that what God offers us is better than what we can get on our own. You know, I, I really think one of the most important truths that we can embrace, and it's why I say it over and over and over again in here, but I, I just think it's one of the most important things that we can embrace as believers is this truth, is that God's design is for his glory and for our good. That God's design is for his glory and for our good. Like when he created us, he created us for his glory as his image to reveal his greatness. And in that revelation of who he is, we also experience the fullness of life that he created. Like it's not just me following rules, it's me pursuing the fullness of life. And in doing so, glorifying God in all things. That's why when I counsel people or when I meet with people, I am not ashamed to tell them what the scriptures teach about a specific thing. Even when it's hard. Because I honestly believe that God's design is for their good. I'm not looking out as someone who just says, you need to pick, get your stuff together and make sure you're more moral, I'm looking at them and saying, I love you, God loves you, and I think his design is where flourishing is found. Like, it's where it's found. So when couples are living together and sleeping together out of wedlock, and I meet with them, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say, don't do that. Not just because it's bad, 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 but because you are, you are flushing the fullness of life that God offers. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Because God's design is for his glory and for our good. So we, we don't need to be ashamed to communicate that. And we certainly don't want to be ashamed to live within that. Because it's where the fullness of life is found. And yet this man trades eternal joy for temporal desires or pleasures. And even in the temporary, I think he loses. That's what's even doubly tragic. He even loses in the here and now. And the disciples see this interaction. 
okay? And they, remember the, remember the cultural understanding at the time. If you're wealthy, God likes you. So how does God reveal his blessings? Easy. He makes you rich. That's the mindset. So when they hear Jesus say, let me tell you how, how difficult it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, they're going, <laughs> what? If, if it's that hard for them to get in, what chance do we have? What chance does anybody have? That's why in verse 26 it says, they who heard it said, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. You see, salvation is always by grace. It's always a work of God. Always. And it's always miraculous. It's miraculous. So last Sunday, there were six miracles right over there in the children's area. Because salvation is completely a work of God by His grace and it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And what's impossible for us, it's possible through our God. So then starting in verse 28, Peter chimes in. And you, you always love it when Peter chimes in because you know it's about to get interesting, you know. And he asks an earnest question of Jesus. And this brings us to scene three where we look at the rewards of faith. Peter says, behold. Nice, Peter, nice. Behold. Jesus, we have left our own homes and followed you. So in essence, Peter is saying, hey, you know that rich young ruler, the guy you were just talking to? He didn't want anything to do with you, man. He bailed. He bailed on you because it was too hard. He didn't want to give up what he had. Jesus, we, we have. We're here. What about us? What about us? And, and what Jesus says is, in response is pretty powerful. In verse 29 it says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much, as this, many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So the first thing Jesus emphasizes is something that many of us spend our whole life trying to avoid, that we are going to have to give things up. There may be a little suffering involved. Jesus affirms that right here. And what we give up is going to be different for different people. Some lose their life. They just lose their life. Some lose their job. Some lose relationships. Some lose family members. Some will lose everything, but all will lose something. All will lose something. Now, now one quick aside. When Jesus talks about leaving brother, sister, child, spouse, he is not promoting abandonment. Let's just be clear. He's not promoting that. What he's saying is there will be sacrifices. So let me give you an example of a sacrifice. Maybe you have to go do something that takes you away from your family for a while. We have military people who get deployed. There's times of spiritual deployment. I think of the great Eric Little, the guy from Chariots of Fire, serving in China as a missionary. The war breaks out. He stays with those he's ministering. He sends his family to Canada, and then he dies. He dies in China, where he's buried. I think of Lottie Moon. If you're from a Southern Baptist background, you know about Lottie Moon, this incredibly gifted young woman 
gifted in languages, gifted in ministry, who goes and becomes a uh, missionary, and she has, she's in love with her professor. And they love one another. And they're, they're going to be married, but over time, as she's serving, her professor starts moving away from some core aspects of the gospel. He ultimately becomes a Unitarian. And she writes him and she says, I love you. I love you. But I will not marry you. Because I will not allow you to come to China and destroy the gospel. So I'm not going to marry you. And so she gave up her dream of marriage for the sake of the gospel. And yet here's the secret, right? The, the secret is that the sacrifice does not remove the reward. The sacrifice leads to the reward. And this is what Jesus teaches over and over again. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will find it. It's that great paradox, right? One, one of my favorite quotes is from a Cuban evangelist, and he talks about the three paradoxes of the Christian faith. He says, you must give in order to receive, you must let go in order to possess, and you must die in order to live. And Jesus says, the loss you experience on my behalf will be replaced hundredfold here in eternal life in the age to come. It's a blessing now and a fullness of the blessing to come. And we may hear that, and we may say, that, you know, that sounds great. I mean, that sounds great. But then we ask the question, how can Jesus honestly say that to his apostles? I mean, ten of these guys are going to be martyred for their faith. And we're not talking about a gentle, kind martyrdom, if there is one right? We're talking about some heinous ways to die and some heinous suffering that these apostles will experience. Like, how can Jesus say, oh, it's not just an eternal reward, it's the fullness of life now. And in one sense, he can say it because it's true. I know a number of you who have lost brothers or sisters because of your faith, but you've also gained hundreds and thousands of brothers and sisters in the faith, in the family of God. Those of you who have lost parents or been separated by parents for whatever reason, who have gained parents in the family of God, those who have wayward children, who have received new children in the family of God. It is a real thing when the church functions as it should that we become a, a huge, loving family. That being said, I would argue that Jesus is articulating something even bigger, even deeper. And I love the way Pastor John Piper describes it, how he describes this text. And this is what Piper writes. He says, surely what Christ means is that he himself makes up for every loss. If you give up a mother's nearby affection and concern, you get back 100 times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the warm comradeship of a brother, you get back 100 times the warmth and camaraderie from Christ. If you give up the sense of at-homeness you had in your house, you get back 100 times the comfort and security of knowing that your Lord owns every house and land and stream and tree on earth. Isn't Jesus saying that I promise to work for you and be for you so much that you will not 
be able to speak of having sacrificed anything. You see, at the end of the day, our reward is God himself, the one who created us. That's why Augustine's spot on when Augustine writes that, Thou, O God, has made us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee, the God of the universe, the one who is the foundation of our faith. And this takes us to our final section. In verse 31, Jesus takes the twelve aside, and he says to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. So Jesus predicts his death again and his resurrection. He does it in the most detail he's done of yet. The disciples are still completely blind to it. But what they're going to come to realize after the fact is that what Jesus is teaching them is actually the foundation of their faith. That the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is at the core of everything. Of everything. I want to close with a story. I had a... Well, Victoria and I went on our 10-year anniversary trip a couple weeks ago, seven months early, but that's okay. She's pregnant, okay? It's okay. It's okay. I've convinced myself it's okay. And this was kind of a bucket list trip, just a kind of a dream come true. And we went to London, and then we spent some time in Ireland. And one of the thrills for me was getting to see some of the ancient texts that are housed over there. So in the British Library in London, you have the most famous Greek New Testament called, called the Codex Sinaicus. And it's right there. You have a 1611 King's Bible. You have the only surviving William Tyndale English translation. You have papyri from the 2nd century. I mean, it's just incredible. But then we went to, to Dublin, and our first day in Dublin was like a classic, cold, rainy, dreary Irish day in November. And so we went to Trinity College which is the most prestigious university in all of Ireland. So it's, it's very akin to what Texas A&M is here. <laughs> you didn't really think I wasn't going to mention something. It can only go so long. Um, so we're at Trinity College, and housed at Trinity College is the most famous ancient artifact in all of Ireland. It's called the Book of Kells. You see, when, when the Roman Empire was expanding... It did not get to Ireland. It didn't get to Ireland. It went to Britain. Hadrian's Wall. Britannia was as far as it went. You know why? Because the Irish were nuts. <laughs> Total pagans. Like, I'm not going there. Well, Patrick goes. Patrick goes there. And the gospel comes to Ireland. And th this is amazing. The gospel just flourishes in this little country. I mean, it just flourishes in Ireland. And as the Roman Empire falls, Ireland becomes one of the centers of Christian scholarship. It becomes the center of learning. They set up all the monasteries. They send out missionaries. They copy the scriptures. They are the key to maintaining learning during the Dark Ages. That's why they talk about Ireland as the place of scribes and scholars. There's a book written called How the Irish Saved Western Civilization. That's what it's talking about. This was the place 
where they protected the scriptures and they kept learning alive. And one of the things they would do is they'd copy the scriptures because they had an evangelistic heart is they would, they would draw pictures. They would illustrate the Bible. That's part of tracts. A lot of people couldn't read. But the most famous one is this thing called the Book of Kells. And it's this Bible that is marvelously illustrated. I mean, it's breathtaking. And I stood over this Book of Kells, and it was just a worshipful moment in this basement of Trinity College. And I just stared at it. And I was so humbled. And I felt so inadequate as a pastor. I mean, so inadequate. These guys gave their entire life. I mean, they're working on a single page for weeks. They're, every detail matters to them. They've given their whole life in this monastery. And I'm frolicking around Dublin with an Americano, you know? I mean, they have a childlike faith of dependence. I have childlike immaturity. And, and I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I imagine you have because I talk to you and you go, uh, everybody knows the Bible more than me. Everybody's so much more spiritual than me. I'm the only one struggling with this. No one else is struggling with what I'm struggling with. If there's one thing I've learned in ministry, it's this. You all struggle. And so do I. And we all feel so inadequate. And as I was looking at the book of Kells, though, it hit me, is that my my faith, my hope is not based on my ability to create another book of Kells. My hope and my faith is actually not even dependent on my ability to be obedient to what I just preached. Of undivided loyalty and total commitment. My hope is in Christ. His death. His resurrection. His righteousness. In my place. His death for my benefit. That's the hope of the Christian. Because we all fail. We're all inadequate. And it is to draw our eyes to the beauty of the Savior who came, who lived, who died, and who rose again. That is the foundation of our faith. It's not my obedience. It's not my intensity. It's not my success rate. It's Christ in my place. That's the foundation of our faith. That's the hope of the believer. So let's come to him like, with faith like a child, trusting in his goodness that he has already revealed. When the challenges come, let's hold tight to our Savior. He is our rock, the cornerstone. Let's understand that the rewards are found in following him because he himself is the reward. And may us never forget that we don't have a blind faith. Our faith is not just dis, not attached to anything. Our faith has an end, and that end is Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection. Will you pray with me? Father, you are so good. You're so good to us, and we thank you so much for the, the ability to gather, to worship in song, through your word, through fellowship, through prayer. Lay all that we are at your feet and just be honest and say, I am so inadequate. I don't want to have divided loyalties. I don't want to struggle. I don't want to lack trust. But God, I find myself in this place time and time again. And so, Father, would you bring us back? 
by the work of your spirit inside us to, to set our eyes on the beauty of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who did what we could not do, what was impossible for us, was possible with God. And so, Lord Jesus, you took on flesh. You lived a perfect life. You willingly died on the cross and you rose from the grave, conquering sin and death and inviting all those who will place their trust in you that they might have the fullness of life now and eternal life to come. And so, Father, I pray if there's anybody in here who's never taken that step of faith, by the power of your spirit, would you tune their hearts to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, the foundation of our faith. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. To you be the glory. To you be the praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.